Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Grace City Church podcast. If you would like more info on our church, you can visit gracecityboston.com. Now let's get to the sermon. Hey, good evening. Uh, If you're in the room, good evening. Or if you're watching online, uh, good morning. Or at whatever point you find yourself watching this. I I do want to mention just kind of on the front end, uh, I know that, that Haley mentioned it, that we will be meeting in person um, for Easter, and so we've just been uh, we've just been going all over the place. <laughs> we've just been all over Boston uh, to find uh, the right location, and so we we will be in person. We, what I would ask you, um, just like as your pastor, it, it man, would you just like pray with us? Just like pray t- pray to God. That's important to God, and and I just really ask him like like that we would have the clarity, the discernment to know exactly where. Uh, we didn't need to need to go. There's a couple of different locations, a couple of different things that need to kind of fall in place in order for those locations to be best. Um, and so, if you could just kind of pray with us uh, in that process, and we're we're really, as Haley mentioned, it, we're really excited to like see people, people. You know, we're we're really eager to to get to that place. And uh, who would have thought, man? Who would have thought a year a year later? Uh, a year past, it seems like we're getting into a pace where we're going to be able to do that regularly. And so uh, if you just pray for us, that'd be great. Pray for our church that we'd find uh, the spot that we need to be in. Um, that would be a wonderful thing. And so we're, we're going to kick into um, our series. We're actually in week four uh, of a current series that we're in uh, called the, the Holy Week. And so over kind of the past uh, three weeks, we've been looking at um, these kind of various events and various markers in the life of Jesus leading up to the cross and the resurrection. Uh, and so week one, we saw Jesus' triumphal entry. So he's coming into the city of Jerusalem, and they're, they're kind of um, recognizing him as king. We, we said one of the really important things is that if you don't see Jesus as king, you don't see him rightly. You have to recognize the fact um, that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God, to kind of um, uh, enact the kingdom of God in his time that has then carried on to where we are. And so that was week one. In week two, uh, we looked at something called the upper room. And so this was uh, uh, the Jewish um, uh, the Jewish Passover festival is going on during this time period, uh, during this Holy Week. And so Jesus has gathered his disciples, and he's doing the Lord's Supper or Passover, um, Eucharist, bread and cup, whatever you you've kind of call it or grew up calling it. And so he's gathering in that that upper room with his followers and disciples. And he's essentially saying everything that uh, was in the Old Testament, this, this idea of Passover, um, this idea of God saving you as a people, I'm the fulfillment of that. And so he's essentially laying claim to the Old Testament um, passage and, and kind of uh, tradition of the Passover. Uh, and then last week, uh, we looked at, Cohen uh, taught um, wonderfully on uh, Jesus in the garden. And, and just this idea that um, th- this idea that, that Jesus, if you go back all the way to the Genesis story, Jesus is checking off. Uh, the boxes and saying, I'm a, I'm a fulfillment of this, right? He's in the garden. I'm, I'm fulfilling this. I'm, there's baptism. There's, it, it's just this, one of the things that we've kind of seen over, over this week, and I will say just kind of on a personal note, because I was thinking about this as we were looking, uh, as we were kind of getting into this passage, just thinking about it. Uh, I don't know in all the years of ministry that I have spent as much time studying, thinking about, and teaching towards and, and inside of the Holy Week, like this is probably the most time that I've spent just in really concentrated time of, of these kind of seven, five to seven days leading up to Jesus' um, death and resurrection. And it has been 
um, just processing that, it's been really good. Like it's been, it's been good for me. I, I feel like my heart has really been um, prepped in a lot of ways towards Easter that, that in the past it maybe hadn't been. And just I just kind of tend to dive into Easter. And so if you haven't uh, if you haven't seen any of those three weeks, you can go back uh, and watch those on our YouTube or, or listen to them um, on the podcast. And, and just so you can kind of get a grasp of. Uh, what's going on. But one of the things that we're seeing and that we're going to see in this particular passage, we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to uh, Luke 22. We're going to be starting in verse 66 um, of this passage, uh, of this kind of narrative that that we're looking at. But one of the things that we're beginning to see, which is similar to any kind of great story or great movie, um, is we're really beginning to see the conflict continues to increase. And so as we get closer to the the crucifixion and the resurrection, the conflict in which Jesus is facing is kind of ratcheting up. It's getting more and more um, intense. And so last week, he's in the garden. Uh, he, he comes, one of the disciples that are close to him, betrays him, and then he is... Uh, he's arrested, uh, and then he's brought before uh, essentially the Roman governor of of this area of Palestine, um, brought right to kind of his doorstep, and, and the trial of Jesus is going to begin. But before we get into that, before we look at kind of um, this guy named Pilate, let, let's look at how Jesus ended up there. So Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 66, I'm just going to pray briefly uh, before we get in. God, thank you. Um, thank you that we can see this story, that we can... Um, that, that we can kind of stand outside of this story, this Passover um, resurrection, Holy Week story, and, and see Jesus' interaction here. We, we have the ability to, to see what he said and, and see w- what he did in this moment, God. And so would you help us today, God, as we're, we're looking at this, if we're seeking to, um, to, to grow in our understanding of who you are and who you've created us to be and who Jesus is, God. And so we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. All right, verse 66, Luke 22. Uh, this is what it says. It says, When daylight came, uh, the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the scribes, convened and brought him, that's him, is Jesus, before the Sanhedrin, and they said, If you are the Messiah, tell us. But he said to them, If I do tell you, you will not believe, verse 68. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Verse 70. Here's the question. They asked, Are you then the Son of Man? And he said to them, You say that I am. Verse 71. What, why, uh, why do we need any more testimony, they said, since we've heard it ourselves uh, from his mouth. It says, then the whole assembly, verse this is, uh, 23, starting at verse 1. It says, then the whole assembly rose up, and they brought him before uh, Pilate, and they began to accuse him. Okay, so we're going to stop there, and then we'll kind of dive into this kind of interaction uh, with, with Pilate. But one of the one of the interesting things that we begin to see that, that Jesus does is he has a unique ability um, to take his kind of the enemies that he had against him, the religious leaders that he had uh, against him. So the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, you, you kind of, the Zealots, you had all of these uh, various kind of religious leaders of the time. And one of the unique things that we notice about Jesus is he kind of unites them all in their uh, disgust for him. Like we, we end up seeing as we kind of progress into the narrative story that all of these religious leaders are seeing Jesus as, an, as a threat to the establishment, as, as, a threat to, um, as a threat to the system that they've created. And he bothers them. 
and, and they've got this, this kind of setup that they are, um, that they're comfortable with. And so now they've decided, right, that they're going to come against this Jewish rabbi who, who teaches nonviolence, who cares for the poor, who teaches radical generosity and self-denial. They now have decided that they're going to come against him. If you'll notice in this account by Luke, um, what do they ask him? They ask him if he's the Messiah. And, and he responds with kind of an answer that is somewhat ambiguous, uh, if you're looking at but also seems to be clear based on their response. So look back at verse 37. Uh, but he, uh, so they've, they've said to him, hey, are you the Messiah? Are you the one coming? And then verse 37, this was his response to them. If I do tell you, you won't believe. So if I tell you I'm the Messiah, you won't believe that I'm the Messiah. And if I ask you, you will not answer. And then he just simply says, listen, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of God. Now, they, the, um, their response to this is then what? In verse 70, it says, then they all asked, are you the Son of God? They just came out with it. Are, are you the Son of God? And he said to them, you say that I am. And now we know that they're receiving what he just said as an indictment. They're receiving it based on verse 71. They say what? They say, why do we need any more testimony since we've heard it ourselves from his mouth? So they're receiving that he's saying, yes, I am the son of God. Okay, so let's understand their complaint for a second. So they're asking him if he believes. They don't believe he's the Messiah. They're asking him, do you believe that you are the Messiah, right? The long-awaited savior of the people of God. And he responds with a yes. Now this is what? This is blasphemy to them. This is blasphemy against God. This is a major uh, offense to their religious system. And what have they decided? They've decided action is now necessary. This has gone, this has gone on long enough. You've, you've had your teachings. You've gathered your followers, right? You, you've been healing some people. You've been, you've, been, you've been doing your thing for the last three years, but that's enough. That's enough. We're, we're, this, is, this is over with. Okay, so let's look. They're, they're going to bring him into uh, this guy named Pilate. This is the, the kind of a new character for us in this particular story. It says, uh, this is 33 starting in kind of the end of verse 1. It says, then their whole assembly rose up, and they brought him before Pilate. Verse 2. They begin to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Okay, so what charge do we expect them to bring against Jesus in front of Pilate? What, what is the charge that we're, 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 we're assuming they're going to bring, right? What are they accusing Jesus of being, right? What are we thinking they're going to do? They're, we're thinking that the charge is blasphemy against their God. That the questioning was what? What was, are you the son of God? That was the question. This, this is kind of what we expect, right? That is the evidence that they have to bring Jesus forward, right? So if you're going to go to trial with someone, you are going to, uh, you're going to bring the evidence with you that does what? That lines up with the charge. This is what you do when you go to trial. You say, well, I have an evidence that points to a charge, and so I'm going to bring this um, charge uh, against you. However, we, we don't see them bring a charge of religious blasphemy against Jesus, do they? That, that's not what they do. They accuse Jesus of being what? They, they accuse, you got to hear this part. They're essentially accusing Jesus of being a political leader who's working against Rome. The, the, the charges that they bring against him, right, are a fabrication, they're a lie. 
they're, they're, they're clearly not true. They're, they're saying things like he's telling his followers to not pay taxes, to be disruptive right now. We know this is a direct lie because in Matthew uh, 25, Jesus is having an interaction with his disciples and he actually tells them to give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, right? He's saying Caesar has a kingdom that's an earthly kingdom and, and my father has a kingdom that is a heavenly kingdom. So give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. We, we know this is a fabrication and a direct lie because we have it in Scripture. There's nowhere in Scripture do we ever see Jesus incite his followers to rebel against the Roman government. They actually would have loved that. But this is kind of what they wanted, right? We talked about that in week one. They wanted to come against the, uh, the Roman government, but the religious leaders knew this about Jesus. They knew that this wasn't his teaching. This, is, this wasn't uh, what he was about. Now, here's the interesting thing. I want us to kind of gather around this thought for a second because this just kind of rises to the surface as you're uh, kind of um, looking at this particular thing that's happening. These false accusations against Jesus, they shouldn't surprise us, should they? Like, like hasn't God, think about this, hasn't God's foes since the beginning brought fa- false accusations against him? It isn't one of their strongest weapons, the, the enemies of God, isn't one of their strongest weapons against the people of God to implant doubt in our hearts against our God? It, it, like, isn't that, isn't that what they do? Think back to, uh, think back to the garden, right? So, so we have this interaction between Adam and Eve and the serpent. And, and Adam and Eve, if you look back, this is in Genesis chapter 3, you, you don't have to turn there, but um, they're, they're having this interaction with the serpent. And so Adam and Eve are instructed after God creates them uh, not to eat from the tree in the middle of the garden or they will experience death. He says you'll, you'll, you'll experience death. This is a very clear instruction, very clear. This isn't like ambiguous. It's not, you know, muddled in any way. It's just if you eat it, you will experience death. What do we see Genesis chapter 3, 4 and 5? What does God's enemy, the serpent, do? What does he say in verse 4? This is what he says to Adam and Eve. No, you will not certainly die. Verse 5. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil evil. Now here, what does the serpent do? Here, the serpent is making what? A false accusation against God. From the the very beginning, right? False witness and slander are two of the enemy's favorite weapons. I mean, he, he, Eve was told uh, essentially what by, by the enemy of God? Eve was told what? That she couldn't trust God. That, That he was holding something back. Wasn't she? That was the, the crux of it. Was it? What was what was Satan doing in that moment? He was doing what? He he was bearing false witness against God. He was saying something that wasn't true about God. See, Jesus actually knows this about our enemy. He this is an incredible thing about that you have to kind of grasp around this narrative is he knows exactly what is happening in this moment. This kind of at, these false accusations that are rolling around about him, right? That he's hearing these religious leaders make about him to Pilate. Jesus isn't surprised by this. He's not surprised that the enemy would would lie, would fabricate, would bear false witness against him. He actually says in John chapter eight, listen what he says about Satan, God's enemy here. He says he. Uh, this is um, eight. This is uh, John eight forty four. If you want to write this down, but it says he Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth 
Because, why doesn't he stand in truth? Because there is no truth in him. And when he tells, this is, this is bold, he says, when he tells a lie, he speaks his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So you see the depth of everything that's going on here in this moment with the religious leaders. They're not working for God in this moment. They're, they're working on behalf of the enemy. They're, they're, bearing, uh, they're bearing false um, witness. And, and all throughout Jesus' ministry, all throughout his ministry, they sought to misrepresent him, to bring false accusations uh, against him. Luke 7, verse 34 it's, I, I personally love this verse. It says, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a, a glutton and a drunkard, a, a friend of tax collectors and a sinners, right? I mean, Jesus sounds like he's a blast, personally, doesn't he? And, and, and they view the fact that Jesus sits around and eats and he's drinking with these tax collectors and outcasts and sinners. I mean, they're bringing accusations against him because the way of Jesus is what? To get close to the marginalized to the outcast, eat with them, drink with them, spend time with them. And they're saying, no, no, he's a, he's a drunkard and a, and a glutton, man. He, like, this is the, the work of the enemy, is to bring a false accusation uh, uh, against God. This is, this is what he's doing. Now, now before, think about this. Now, before we cast a critical eye towards the Roman government, right, because they're going to go along with these lies. They're, they're going to kind of follow along in this process as we're going to see in this story. But before we cast a critical eye towards the Roman government for going along with these lies, shouldn't we just kind of state the obvious today? I, I just feel like this morning or tonight, we should just state the obvious. Aren't we easy to believe the lies of the devil against God as well? Like, aren't we just as easy to believe the fabrications against our God? Right, God, God can't be trusted with your relationship, so you, you must take the rein and take anyone. Just grab anyone. You can't trust God with your relationships. You're lonely, right? Need a guy, need a girl. You take the, like, God, God can't be trusted with that. God can't be trusted with your finances. You should manipulate. You should lie. You should, should just kind of do whatever you need to do because God, God, right? God doesn't really love you. No one does, right? You don't really have worth. You can't trust that God loves you. That's not, right? God doesn't understand your temptation, so go ahead and give in. He doesn't understand the temptations you experience. Let's go, go ahead and give in, right? God's not in control. You take control. God can't provide you with real joy, right? The way of Jesus, the, the way of Jesus, um, re real joy doesn't come through the way of Jesus. It comes through pursuing your, your uninhibited desires. You should go after those. Chase after those. But don't we have a tendency to believe the fabrications against God just as much as the Roman government does in this moment? In this in this this true of us? I mean, when we, when we sin, we're essentially believing a lie against God. We're saying, no, nah, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. Okay, so let's, let's jump back into the narrative. Okay, so, um, so they bring this charge against Jesus uh, that is clearly false, right? So their, their claim is that he's a political leader and he's bringing trouble to the Roman Empire, right? Why, essentially, why did they tell this lie? Why, are, why is this the lie that they're bringing forward? Well, essentially, they're telling this lie because the Roman government, what? They do, they do not care. They, they don't care uh, what a religious leader thinks about himself. They don't care. 
the Roman government uh, could could care less uh, about what he thinks about. Look what look at this dialogue between Pilate and Jesus uh, in verse three of this um, of Luke twenty three. Look at this in verse three. It says, "So they've they've the 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 religious leaders have made all these false claims about him, and so Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews?'" Right. This is in response to the charge of the religious leaders, and he answers them and says, "You say so." Verse 4, Pilate then told the chief priests in the crowds, uh, I find no grounds for charging this man, but they kept insisting he stirs up the people, teaching throughout, uh, teaching, uh, throughout all Judea and Galilee, uh, where he started even to hear. Now, here's what I find so frustrating, if I'm being really honest, here's what I find so frustrating about this interaction, is that the answer that Jesus gives to Pilate is what? It is clearly ambiguous. Is it not? I mean, if you're looking back at the if you're looking back at the the text, his response is, "You say so, you say so." It's not a yes or a no. See, see, Pilate, uh, he's likely probably heard of Jesus before, right? He he probably knew that he was controversial. Uh, he probably, honestly, he probably viewed Jesus as some kind of Jewish, uh, kind of some Jewish kind of mystical teacher or leader. Like this is kind of what he understands about him. Like it's highly unlikely that he viewed Jesus as some renegade rabbi that's bringing down the Roman government. Do you know what I mean? Like some like Rambo rabbi renegade. You know, that's, that's not, this is not, this is not who Jesus was, right? Honestly, it, in all likelihood, this was probably just a major inconvenience to Pilate to even be dealing with this. It's a, a terrible um, inconvenience, right? Now, now, what do we know about Pilate? We know that he has no problem. He has no problem destroying people for capital treason. Right, he, he wasn't a benevolent man. Uh, he, he just wasn't threatened by Jesus. He didn't see Jesus as a threat to the kingdom. Right, if anything, he, he probably just wanted to um, get this thing over with. Now, the thing that you have to understand, and we talked about it in week one, is that in Jerusalem at this point is the Passover. So the city is packed in with the Jewish people to celebrate Passover. This is why Jesus, uh, in the upper room discourse, why Jesus has to find a room for them, why they're concerned that they won't find a room, because Jerusalem is packed with people. And so if anything, Pilate's thinking, I do not want to create a situation among the Jewish people that'll get out of control, because he knows the, these people have been following around uh, Jesus, they've been seeing his ministry, they've been part of his ministry, they've been seeing some of his teaching. And so if anything, he's thinking like, Man, I don't want to, I don't want to stir this thing up, right? And so for all of these reasons, right, all of these things that are kind of swirling around, he does what? He gives Jesus an easy out. He he asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Are you the king of the Jews? Is that is that who you are? Now, what now here's the thing. Here's what you have to because you have to work to get under what Pilate is asking. You would have to do that. Um, he, he is not saying are you the long-awaited Messiah who in the Hebrew scriptures have testified about and will usher in the kingdom of God? That's not what Pilate's saying, right? Pilate's not like, I've been reading the Hebrew scriptures and I know that there's a long-awaited Messiah who's gonna come. And I've clearly seen this in Isaiah. And so I need to know, are you the king of the Jews? This is not what, this is not what Pilate is asking. This is what a Pilate is, is, is essentially saying or asking of Jesus. Remember, because he's part of the Roman government. He's saying to him, are you, a political leader? Are you a political, like, are you going to lead a revolt against Rome? Right, because remember the accusations were what? 
that he was stirring up trouble for the nation, that, that he was working against Rome. Remember, Pilate doesn't care if he's a religious leader. He just, he doesn't care. He just needs to know if Jesus is going to be a problem for Rome. That's what he needs to know. This is, this is why he says, are, are, you the, are you the king of the Jews? Have you ever been asked a question that no matter how you answered it, you, you'd be skewed in, a, a, in an improper light? Right, so if, so if I came up to you and I said, um, I said to you, hey, are you going to evade your taxes again this year? Is there a way for you to answer that that doesn't make you sound awful, right? No. If you said no to that, then we would all assume that you evade your taxes last year. And most certainly, if you said yes to that, we would all automatically judge you, you know, in that moment. Or ask for your tax person. And so we, like, this is what was going on in this moment. Jesus is being asked a question that he can't say yes or no to. This is why he's, his answer is a, bit, uh, is a bit ambiguous, right? So in a narrow sense, no, Jesus isn't a political leader, right? He, he, he's not. He's not there to establish a political system. He's not interested in overthrowing the Roman government. We looked at that in week one, right? That would be quite frankly, too small of a goal to overthrow the Roman government. It would last for a few years, and then it would, and then it would fall to pieces. And so in a, in a very kind of broad sense, he, he's like, no, I'm not a political leader. But then in a, uh, in a much broader sense, right, in, in, a, in a whole lot of a, a kind of a broader sense, what he is advocating for, the, the way of Jesus that he is advocating for will be a disruptive force in any political system. It will be. So, so no, in one way, he's not a political leader. And, and yes, in another way, he's very much a political leader. See, he's not a political leader in the sense that Pilate thinks. That's not what he's, he's doing here. And we'll actually, we'll actually see this in the, the utter contempt that the Roman government has for Jesus, right? So if you look at the crucifixion story, so if we were kind of fast forward into the crucifixion story, or if you pick it up in other gospel stories, and we'll just kind of look at it briefly, it isn't the religious leaders who are showing kind of just utter contempt for Jesus, it's the Romans. So uh, Luke uh, chapter 22, starting in verse 11 he goes to Herod. This is what we see later in the text. We won't get into it, but he goes to Herod. Herod wants to see a miracle from Jesus, like he's some circus monkey. And so they, he, he asks for a, a miracle, and Jesus is like, nah, bro. You know, he's not, he's not, not going to do that. And so the text tells us in Luke 23, verse 11, it says, Then Herod, with his soldiers, treated, with him, uh, treated him with contempt, mocked him, dressed him in bright clothing like a king, and sent him back to Pilate. John chapter 19, verses 2 and 3. It says, The soldiers, the Roman soldiers, also twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and clothed him in a purple robe, verse 3, and they kept coming up to him saying, Hell, King of the Jews! Hell, King of the Jews! And were slapping him in his face. They're essentially saying what? Look, this Jesus has no power. He has no power. He can't do anything. So we're going to make a crown of thorns, we're going to slap his face, we're going to mock him, we're going to dress him up, we're going to embarrass him, 
because he has no power to stop us. He can't, he can't essentially, um, he can't essentially stop us. And Jesus, he doesn't do what? In, in, in all of this, this is an incredible thing about this. In all of this, he, he doesn't, he doesn't even flinch. Jesus could have evaporated the Romans in a second, right? Like Wanda vision style, evaporated them, just, just ended them. But he doesn't. Why doesn't he? Because he isn't political in that sense. He's not interested in a worldly political system. So, so he's not going to do it. So, so why doesn't he just say? Why doesn't he just say no? Because, in the broader sense, he is now right. He's not bringing a political program, right? He doesn't have a set of policies for bringing about change or an agenda for transformation. But what you'll find is that if you stay and follow the way of Jesus long enough, you'll see that what Jesus does to you changes everything about you. If you get close enough to him and you follow the way of Jesus long enough, he changes everything about you. You, you, you become a, a different person. Your allegiance will no longer be to any state, political party, or policy, right? So we, we see how political Jesus really is, right? The way of Jesus is disruptive. I mean, for believers following the way of Jesus living under Roman occupation, the, the ethos of their community was the opposite to Roman values. There's this, this group, this, this small group, what started as a small group of Jesus followers who were following this rabbi, teacher, and they were creating a, a, an ethos that we see kind of begin to flesh itself out in early Acts that was in complete opposition to Roman values. It was very disruptive, but not disruptive in the way that Pilate thought, in the way that he was, um, in the in the way that he was going to um, anticipate. Now, I, I think, I think one of the things that has been, man, I don't want to spend a lot of time. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, and I'm not going to. Um, but but I do just want to say. Um, in light of the season that we're coming out of, I think the church has a ton of work to do, um, uh, a ton of work to do in rebuilding trust. I, I, think, I think for a long time now, followers of Christ, people living the way of Jesus, has, has for far too long uh, associated with one political party over another political party, has identified with either right or left or, or whatever that looks like, to the detriment of the way of Jesus and the witness of the church. And I think we have a I think we have a ton of work to do in this. And, and I would be it would be wrong to not it'd be wrong to not look at this and, and not kind of recognize it and just say, like, man, we gotta do a lot of work to disassociate ourselves with a political party and associate ourselves primarily with the way of Jesus. I'm not saying politics don't matter. I'm not saying policy don't doesn't matter. I'm just saying a a, a an extreme allegiance to politics, right? Politics has become what? It's become an idol in the, in the place of religion in a lot of ways. And so we have a ton of work, I think, that we got to do to rebuild trust uh, so that non-Christ followers, man, especially in the city of Boston, man, a lot of work to do. Okay, let's get back to the text. I, I don't want to spend a lot of time there. Okay, so verse 13, Luke uh, 23, verse 13. 
It says, Pilate called together. Okay, so, so he's, he had this question time. Pilate called together the chief priests, the leaders, and the people and said to them, uh, you brought me this, this man as one who misleads the people. Uh, but in fact, after examining him in your presence, I found no grounds to charge this man with the things that you accuse him of. Verse 15, uh, neither is Herod because he sent him back to us. Uh, clearly, he's done nothing to deserve death. So he's like, he doesn't deserve death. Uh, we've kind of surveyed this, verse 16. Uh, Therefore, I'll have him whipped, and then I'll release him. Verse 18, then they all cried out together, take this man away, exclamation mark. Uh, release Barabbas to us. We'll get to him in a second. Uh, Barabbas, it says, verse 19, that he'd been thrown into prison for a rebellion that had taken place in the city and for murder. This is who Barabbas was. Verse 20, it says, wanting to release Jesus, Pilate addressed uh, them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What has this man done wrong? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him whipped and then release him. Verse 23, last verse. It says, but they, uh, or 23 through 25, it says, but they kept up the pressure, demanding with loud voices that he be crucified, and their voices won out. So Pilate decided to grant their demand and released the one they were asking for who'd been thrown into prison for rebellion and murder, but he handed Jesus over to their will. Okay, there's two things. If you're taking notes, I want you to write these down. Uh, There's two things that Jesus perfectly displays from this interaction. We're gonna see two things that he perfectly displays from this interaction. Here's number one. Jesus perfectly displays what it looks like to trust the Father. He's going to perfectly display what it looks like to trust the Father. Okay, so let's think about the situation that Jesus is in. So Jesus has spent the last three years uh, ministering throughout Palestine. He's healed the sick. He's He's raised the dead. He's turned water into wine. He's calmed raging storms. He's given the blind their sight back. Uh, He's loved the outcast. He's cared for the marginalized. Uh, He's forgiven the despised. He spent a significant amount of time developing, loving, and encouraging a group of men and living to uh, a group of men and women to live his way. Now he finds himself, think about this. Now he finds himself in front of the Roman governor. Pilate, embarrassed, mocked, ridiculed, and taking the scorn of the religious leaders and the ruling government. His most brave and courageous disciple, a guy named Peter, has openly and passionately denied knowing him and everyone else has run. The crowds many of whom had witnessed the miracles of Jesus, the ones that cheered Hosanna on Monday are screaming, crucify him on Friday morning. How was it that Jesus endured this? Like, like how was it? Well, we, we know from the text, it's, it's, it's pretty simple. It's not, it's not a whole lot of depth here. It was his firm belief that he could trust the Father. He had a firm belief that he could trust the Father. In spite of all of this, 
Look, there's an interaction in the Gospel of John. Um, in John chapter 19, 9 through 11, the Gospel of John gives us some interaction that we don't see in Luke's text. Look at this interaction between Pilate and Jesus here, um, starting in verse 9. It says this. It says, he, he went back into the headquarters, Pilate did, and he asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? And then listen to what Pilate says here. Don't you know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? He's like, don't, don't you realize that I have the power to kill you or I have the power to release you? What is, in this moment, Jesus' response to this? Verse 11. Gosh, man. He says this. You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it had not been given to you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. Now, was Pilate lying about his authority to kill Jesus? No. Pilate actually very much had the authority of Jesus. He, he, he actually had God given authority to kill Jesus. And Jesus is what? Not intimidated by Pilate. He's not intimidated. It's not shaking him in this moment. It's not. He knows, this is what Jesus knows. He knows that Pilate's authority over him is subordinate to God's authority over himself, over Pilate. So he says, you have authority over me, but it's only the type of authority that my father, who I know loves me, cares for me, who I've entrusted myself to, has given you the authority to do what you do. John Piper says it this way. I think it's such a great way. He says, Jesus gets comfort at this moment not because Pilate's will is powerless, but because Pilate's will is guided. Not because Jesus isn't in the hands of Pilate's fear, but because Pilate is in the hands of Jesus' father. See, he's perfectly displaying for us what it means to trust God in this moment. Fleming Rutledge states this beautifully. This is what she says. She's a genius, but if you're not read Fleming Rutledge, you get a book. Not, I mean, you should have books, but get a book by her specifically, not just go, no, go grab a book. All right, so this is what she says. It says, Jesus uh, not only shows us how human, uh, not only shows uh, how human will can align itself with the will of God, but also makes it happen. In his own incarnate person, and then in the greatest act of love that has ever taken place, he gives his own person back to us, crucified and raised from the dead, the first fruits of all who belong to, to him. So uh, Fleming Rutledge says here that, man, Jesus is showing in this moment how human will can align itself with the will of the Father perfectly. He does it so well. So the first thing that we see is we see Jesus perfectly display what it means to trust the Father. Second thing that we see, the, the second thing that we see is we see Jesus perfectly display, I want you to hang in here for a second, perfectly display what enemy love looks like. 
He's going to perfectly display what enemy love looks like. Uh, in Matthew um, chapter 5 through 7, we have what I would consider probably great, uh, Jesus' probably clearest and greatest teachings. Uh, we, we call it the Sermon on the Mount, and he's talking about kind of various different topics uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. So that's, if you need some like devotional material, go to Matthew chapter 5, 5 through 7, just be prepared because it will mess you up. And so, but go to it, um, read it, and, uh, and everything that you cherish on love, hold loosely. All right, so here we go. So Matthew, Matthew chapter five, listen what he says, um, listen what he says about loving neighbor and loving enemy in this moment. So this is five, 43 for 40. I'll just give you a little taste of the Sermon on the Mount. It'll be enough for you. Uh, he says this, uh, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the children, of, uh, the children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the, the Gentiles do the same? He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. The way of Jesus, the, the way of Jesus is to love not just those who love you back, but those who you would consider your enemy. Your enemy. Perhaps I, perhaps I need to pause here for a second. Maybe we need to just collectively sit and reflect here as a church, like both in the room, watching. Like maybe, like who have you refused to love? Right, maybe not explicitly out, out loud, but, but, but in your heart, who have you refused to love? Who, who have you slandered with your words to another that, that you would consider them an enemy? Who, who have you with, withheld forgiveness from? See, so the way of Jesus is to love our enemy, to love him or her. This is why cancel culture is so out of step with the gospel. I do think that we hold people responsible for their actions, 100%. 100% believe that. But we can't withhold our love from people, right? We are not allowed, as a people following the way of Jesus, we are not allowed to write off people. Right? People's actions do not determine their worth. And Jesus, in this moment, is perfectly displaying enemy love. This is, this is what he's doing. Now, he's accomplishing it. What we're going to see is he's accomplishing it on what? On a global scale. I mean, in this moment with, with Pilate and with a criminal named Barabbas, he's on a global scale displaying, perfectly displaying enemy love. Now, Barabbas, who was he? Barabbas was the type of political leader that Pilate would be concerned about. That's who Barabbas was, if you study the text, right? He was essentially a real revolutionary. I mean, the text tells us that what he's currently in prison, right? 
And, and there's quite frankly a strange custom in this period during the Passover where they're allowed to let, uh, where the, the Roman government releases uh, a prisoner. I find it strange, but it is the custom. Uh, I'm just like, I'm thinking about it in my, my context. I'm like, oh, mercy. Um, and, but but th- this, this, is, this exists, right? And so what Luke doesn't tell us, but the other gospel narratives tell us, is that it was actually Pilate's idea to bring Pilate, or to bring uh, Barabbas up next to Jesus for release. This was kind of Barabbas's kind of clever idea. He's assuming that the crowd would not want to release a, a dangerous kind of revolutionary who's in prison for murder. That's what he's assuming. By the way, did you know, did you know that, um, the, 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 that most likely Barabbas's name was actually Jesus? That it was most likely Jesus Barabbas? That, that the, the name Barabbas means sons of the father? Son of the father, right? So we have here what? Think about the situation for a second. We have her what? We have two Jesuses in front of us that, that are here in this moment. And Pilate does what? He says, who do you want? Which one do you want? And, and who do they pick? The guilty criminal. What, what kind of justice is this? This isn't fair. This isn't right. This isn't how the system should work. That a, a guilty man goes free and an unguilty man is convicted. Do you know what Bra- uh, Barabbas received in this moment, in this interaction moment? Do you know what he received? Grace. Unmerited favor. This is, this is what he got. It, it was favor that he didn't earn. If anything, Barabbas deserved what? To be crucified on a hill in Golgotha next to two other criminals. That's what Barabbas deserved. That's what his actions should have given him. But he's received grace, mercy. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, calls each of us ungodly. He calls us sinners. He calls us enemies of God. This is who we were before Christ. Right? Our, our opposition to God is displayed in our self-centeredness, in our greed, in our sexual immorality, in our racism, in our hate towards our enemies, right? This means, all of these things mean what? That we stand as enemies before God. This is what the gospel tells us. We stand as enemies before God. How does God remedy this situation? How does he remedy this situation? The fact that we are his creation, his, his, those made in the image of God, how does he remedy it? Like, how does he fix it? He sends his perfect son. He sends his perfect son. See, at the end of the day, we are who? We are Barabbas. Like, isn't his story, our story, a a rebel freed because of Jesus? Like, isn't that who we are? Church father, um, Listen, listen to what John Calvin says. 
here. I think he, he hits it, and uh, I'll close this out when we'll be done. He says, thus we perceive Christ representing the character of a sinner and a criminal, while at the same time his innocence shines forth, and it becomes manifest that he suffers for another, not his own crime. See, enemy love, enemy love looks like Jesus willingly submitting himself to the Roman government that would ultimately hang him on a cross. This is enemy love. Enemy love drives him to this end. It's a perfect display of this end. And, and so maybe you're here, maybe you're listening or you're, you're in this room and um, maybe, you, maybe you are living in rebellion against God. You've never trusted Christ, right? You're in that position of Barabbas, like the, the rightful thing that you deserve is separation from God because of your rebellion and sin. All of us, all of us, if, if, if this, this is a place we're all born into that position, we're all rebellious people. So maybe you've not trusted Christ before. Perhaps you need to do that. If you're, if you're watching, you can let us know. You can um, message us on there and, and we can kind of talk. What does it mean to be a person following the way of Jesus, someone um, trusting Christ? Uh, maybe you're, you're here, you're listening, and you've, you've, you've been believing the lies of the enemy. He's been slandering God and you've been believing him and you've been walking in anxiety, or you've been walking in a stronghold that is, is keeping you bound up. You know, like, man, there's no, I can't get any freedom out of this. I mean, this is just how life is gonna be. That is a lie from the enemy of God, or a lie from the enemy of God. That's what that is. And so perhaps you need to um, uh, repent, confess, get some support around that. It's not, just having, it's not just having a conversation with God, it's getting some support around you. We would love to be able to, um, We'd love to be able to do that. Maybe you just need to submit. Maybe you need to, um, in your own life, perfectly, perfectly submit to trusting God. Maybe there's an area where you're not trusting Him uh, well, or, or maybe maybe you've been listening. And you're like, "Gosh, man, I've not been practicing enemy love. I've actually been doing the opposite." And I got some people I need to talk to. I got some conversations I need to have. I need to do some work to fix uh, some kind of relational conflict that I have. Let me pray for us. God, thank you. Um, thank you that you uh, don't leave us where we are, but you have provided uh, a, a means to know you, God, that through Christ, um, that we're not stuck in our sin, that we're, we're not um, just simply a convicted people, but we're a people that can experience freedom. And so God, we're grateful for that. Would you take, um, would you take this story, this narrative, this kind of, uh, what we're just kind of getting to watch Jesus interact. Would you um, help us to be more like Jesus, to perfectly trust you, to, to perfectly love our enemies well, God, to not believe the lies of the enemy. God, I pray for anyone who's listening that is believing the lie of the enemy. God, I pray your spirit would press upon them, give them um, clarity and discernment, would show them that, that you love them, that you care for them. God, transform our city the city of Boston. We want to see renewal and revival happen in the city of Boston. God, we, we want to, um, we want what is said about Boston is that it is a, it is a place that New England and Boston is a place where the, the church is thriving and growing in the way of Jesus is, is permeating all throughout the city. God, that's our dream. That's our desire. And we believe it can happen. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.